Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Great. The continuing resolution makes things seem normal until at least the middle of January. But contractors should take note. The CR is less than it seems in terms of opportunities. We get insight now from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. Larry, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you about a revolution of sorts, not a resolution, and that is the way in which Congress could change the venerable multiple award schedule system by changing the pricing basis of it. And you're writing about that this week. And that that seems like a big sea change for something that contractors have butted heads over with GSA for decades. Tom, it's kind of difficult to see what's here. Uh, I think the primary reason that GSA is moving forward with requesting a change, and we're talking here about requesting a change to the Competition and Contracting Act, a law that's been on the books since the mid-1980s. And the specific part of the Competition and Contracting Act is the portion that says using multiple award schedule contracts meets the definition of the Competition and Contracting Act when doing so results in the lowest overall cost alternative to the government. And that's a big statement. It's traditionally been read to uh, include things like the time and overhead it takes an agency to stand up a new acquisition. So it's cost and other factors, not just the, the bottom line price you pay. Increasingly though, I think GSA's inspector general Uh, Other customers and even some contracting officers inside GSA don't really understand that. They look at that lowest overall cost alternative to uh, mean lowest cost, period. And that was really never the intention. So what GSA is trying to do is ask Congress to say, hey, let's change this to really what it should have reflected in the first place, which is the results in the best value. You know, we want to have the best value in government acquisition. Certainly, there's a place in some acquisitions for low price, technically acceptable. But Tom, you and I have talked previously about where that concept has been overapplied to the detriment of government and its missions. So I think what GSA is trying to do here by injecting the best value language into the Competition and Contracting Act definition is get it more attuned with reality and back to where Congress and everybody originally understood it to be, which is, look, the schedules program is a great value program, and it does save agencies time and money from standing up their own contracts or conducting their own acquisitions. So I think this is a common sense move. What it means in terms of GSA schedule prices is difficult to say. There are always crosswinds on that topic, Tom. Well, if you look here, you could say best value might result in uh, better pricing for contractors uh, at the contract level. You know, ultimately every contractor is still going to have to be competitive, and at the same time, we have the administration's better buying initiative. One of its key planks is to lower contract level pricing. So you really do have that cross current working. But this is progress in terms of what you and I can both remember from, you know, maybe 25, 27, 30 years ago when GSA schedule prices were supposed to be the lowest prices, not value, but prices to anyone. 
And if, you know, Boeing so, sold something to the GSA schedule for $1.42 and somebody found it, you know, that they sold it somewhere else for $1.29, that connector part, then they were in trouble with GSA. Those days are long gone. Those days are, are gone for the most part, Tom, and that's probably a good thing. And I think really what we're talking about, you know, in the current marketplace where there's so much pricing visibility, uh, not just on the schedules, but anywhere you go, you know, if you think about how you buy in your own life, you know, over the weekend, I was doing some price comparisons. I looked at a specific industry website for what I was buying and I looked at Amazon and then I looked at uh, some specific OEMs and all that pricing information was immediately available to me. That's the type of thing that's immediately available to government buyers too, Tom, whereas 25 years ago, it really wasn't. So allowing for best value uh, description for schedule items, I think makes sense. It honors the reality of what's going on and it's still shows that GSA scheduled contracts have an excellent place and they are a competitive way of acquisition. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and the matter at hand now is the continuing resolution, which has varying run-out dates for different agencies. You're saying, yeah, well, this is better than nothing, but it's not really the best deal for contractors, and don't take it as we're anywhere near back to normal. Right. I think that contractors need to understand that we are not operating under normal situations, even normal situations that traditionally come with operating under a CR, Tom. You know, we're talking here about really the first time in my memory and maybe the first time ever that we've had kind of a two-step CR. That is, some federal agencies are funded through January 19th, while others, the big ones like the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, are funded through February 4th. I think that gives Congress maybe an artificial feeling that it doesn't uh, have to focus on these issues right now. And indeed, we've already seen congressional attention focus uh, itself onto foreign aid, supplemental bills, things that would help Israel and Ukraine, all of which are important things to do and they need to get done. But what that means, Tom, for appropriations is they get pushed off probably into the next calendar year, which gives us precious little time. And of course, what happens if things get pushed off into the calendar year is you could potentially be looking at a 1% across the board cut in discretionary spending. Congress put that 1% cut in the agreement that it reached when it passed the budget ceiling uh, deal earlier uh, this year, Tom. So if we didn't get our appropriations done by the start of the calendar year, an automatic 1% across the board cut would kick in. Well, now it looks like that's going to happen. Now, Congress did this, so Congress can also undo it if they so choose. But at least right now, that's what we're looking at. So if you're a contractor or a government agency, you have to consider not only can you not start new projects now that require appropriated dollars, you may have actually less money for part of the year uh, moving forward than you have now and less money than you had last year to do either more or at least the same amount of things you were doing. That's a real challenge. It's a real challenge for government agencies in terms of meeting their missions. It's a challenge for contractors in terms of how do I make sure that government business makes sense for my company. 
So in many ways, that 1%, the threat of that 1% reduction in discretionary almost has the effect of making government buyers fear being in a anti-deficiency act situation. It only takes 1%, and if you're spending more 1% more than you've got, then you're, you're legally liable. Right, and that's an important consideration. What we're talking about here in the Anti-Deficiency Act is the government can't commit money that the government may not have to commit. So this could be something that on existing projects, the types of projects that contractors are using to keep their doors open and lights on right now, those could even be somewhat jeopardized. Uh, I think this is an issue, Tom, that's going through uh, the discussions in lots of not just contracting, but general counsel's offices throughout government probably attributes to or helps contribute rather to some of the slower pace of business that maybe some contractors are seeing. Because if you're in government, you have to address this issue of a sequestration and what it means and uh, what uh, it means not only for future things, but what you're already doing. You want to make sure you're staying inside the, the lines. Uh, contractors understand, hopefully, their compliance requirements, but they may not always know that their colleagues in government have the same compliance risks as well. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to 
enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program. 
that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So 
one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank you. uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA. And until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.